You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the law. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There's only one God, and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law? So when I was 15 years old, I went on this 10-day whitewater rafting camp. And it was a real whitewater rafting camp. So there was no, there was no, there was no hotel to go to at night time. There was no tent to go to at night time. We had a tarp that we kind of threw over a branch, right? And that's... That's, that's how we did it, and we, we had to carry everything with us because we weren't going to have any interaction with anyone, hopefully, for those 10 days, and, um, and, and it was up on the snowy river, this massive, powerful river, and we started off on day one um, having as many near-death experiences as you want to have as a 15-year-old, which is several, like dozens, right? Um, we didn't know exactly what we were doing, but we knew that we, we, we were going to nearly die doing it, and so... We, um, first day, we started at the head of the river. It was um, coming out of a, like a, a catchment, and so there was a lot of water. It was narrow, big rapids, heaps of fun. Day two, still fun, um, still nearly killed us, but not, not, so much, not, not so much water and not so much danger. And then by day three, I just remember spending the day dragging the raft through two inches of water, because the river had widened out. We didn't plan it that well, in hindsight. Day three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten, we're dragging the raft through two inches of water, wishing that we'd never been born, to be honest, and um, wishing that we could just go back to the start. And, and, and I don't know, if, um, I don't know if, if you resonate with this, but I kind of feel like that's been our journey through Romans so far. We started off with this big monumental statement from Paul in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 16, you know, not ashamed of the gospel, 
It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. It's off with a bang. And then you hit the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 and it's just heavy sledding. Like he's, he, he goes from that great statement into two inches of water and we've just been dragging ourselves through it. it he, 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 he's kind of been majoring on all of the things that depress us. He's been letting us know that apart from God's grace, we're hopeless. This is why he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Remember another translation of that is, I'm not offended by the gospel. What is there to be offended by in the gospel? Well, it tells us that we can't do it. It tells us, like Jimmy read and prayed from the collect, that we're helpless apart from God's intervention. I mean, it's just brutal. I don't know if you, if you remember this. Let's just take a look at... What Paul says about us, right? <laughs> he, uh, he takes the Psalms and he, he just goes through and, and quotes all his favorite ones that um, are designed to depress us. So this is what he says about us. There is no one righteous, not even one. What, not like Mother Teresa? No, nope, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. So there you go. That's your little pick-me-up for today. Um, I don't read this, this passage very often on Light FM, I find. All right? so every, they've all become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's what we've been hearing over and over again. And Paul's purpose in this is, is to just convince us of the fact that if we're going to be measured against God's standards, we're all screwed. That's what he wants us to know. If we're going to be measured, measured on God's standards, like not the ones that we invent for ourselves, but God's standards, then we've got no hope. Last night I was gathering up the piles of paper that are left by my daughter every day as she writes and draws, and she's a, an artist. And, um, and I was fixing it up just late last night, and I saw this one. This is India's version of what God expects of us. God says, don't be unkind, be like God, feel safe, be brave, be generous, be respectful, be nice, be kind, be loving, be safe, be sharing, be caring, be free. I love that last one. So even according to my seven-year-old's list, we're screwed. Like, I can't, I'm, so, I'm sorry, sweetie, I cannot do all of those things all of the time. Right? If I try really hard, I can do a couple of those for a few minutes. But even just forget a holy God standard of how we ought to live. Just take my seven-year-old standard. And we've got no hope. And that's what he wants us to know. He wants us to know this. And so, it, yeah, it's been a drag, but it's been for our good. And today, we come to a time of refreshment. We come to a time of great encouragement. And if you leave today without having experienced any kind of encouragement, then I've totally failed you or you haven't been listening. 
Because here we come, let me, let me just read the first, first verse that we've got before us. In verse 21, he says, but now, stop there. Those first two words are beautiful words for, for you to hear, if you're like me. And you felt the weight of what he's been saying about us. Our inability to be justified by keeping the law. That is, by being good enough. Our failure to be able to be saved by pulling ourselves by, up by our bootstraps, by just trying harder, by just white-knuckling it. That failure is relieved by these two words. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great preachers of our time, said this, There are no more wonderful words in the whole of the Scripture than just these two words, but now. What vital words these are. He first of all paints his black and his somber and his hopeless picture. Then, having done that, he says, but now. And you say, so what? Like, but, but now, why is that so good? Why is that such good news? Why, why are these words so wonderful? Why are they the most beautiful words for sinners to hear? Let's keep reading on. Verse 21 and 22. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So the righteousness of God is the thing that God gives you that makes you right with Him. Sometimes the Bible speaks of the righteousness of God in sort of the abstract sense, like this is His attribute. He is, he is righteous, He is perfect, He is holy, He is pure, He is good. But here He's referring to that thing which God gives us that makes us right with Him, that makes us acceptable to Him. It makes it possible for us to be loved by him and not destroyed by him. And he says that righteousness has been made available, has been revealed apart from the law. That this, this righteousness, this thing that God gives us that makes us right with him, is more, it's more than just forgiveness. It's more than just the judge looking at you and saying, I know you're a terrible person, but the, the penalty has been paid. You're, you're free. It's more than that. The righteousness of God that's given to us not only makes us forgiven, but it makes us acceptable. It makes us adopted, received by God himself. I love the way that the, the former Archbishop of Sydney Sir Marcus Sloan, he says this, The voice that spells forgiveness will say, You may go. You have been let off the penalty which your sin deserves. But the verdict which means acceptance or righteousness will say, You may come. You are welcome to all my love and presence. That is beautiful. That's good news. And, and when, when I was digging up that quote this past week, I felt like, man, this is, this is kind of a prophetic word our church needs to hear because I, 
I think that probably many of us think about our relationship with God in terms of the, the, that I'm the guilty sinner and he's the judge and, and he's let me off my sin. And that's wonderful and I praise God for his forgiveness. But we fail to see that he's actually more than that. He's the father who welcomes us into his presence. Yes, he's the judge who acquits us, and praise God for that. But more than that, he is the Father who says, you may come, you are welcome to all my love and presence. He has made us a co-heir with his Son. Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to me. Because I have Jesus' righteousness. And Paul says, you need to know this righteousness is given to you as a gift. The second part of, uh, first part of verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This righteousness is given. That's what we need to know. That's Paul's biggest idea for us right now. He, ha- he, he desperately wants you to know that this righteousness, this, this right standing with God is given It's not earned. It's not earned. If you're here this morning, you're looking at your watch, but you wish you were at home watching TV, but like, oh, I've got to do the right thing, and, you know, this is a down payment on my eternal insurance policy. It's garbage. What you are doing here is earning you nothing. The Old Testament prophets who are who are, who are more earthy than Christian leaders today, said that that kind of thinking, right, our, our works of righteousness are like filthy rags to God. And what he's referring to is like tampons. He said that's how God views your trying to earn his righteousness. No. This righteousness, this right standing with God is given It's a gift. You can't earn it. It's given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So if it's given through faith, the question is, what what do I have to have faith in? To receive this gift, what, what am I putting my trust in? And so he goes on, verse 22 to 24, I'll read the whole thing for us. But now, apart, uh, 21 to 24, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The right, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The thing that I put my faith in is the redemption that was won for me by Christ Jesus. If you've been in this church the last 12 months, you'll be very familiar with this idea of redemption. As we preached through the first half of the book of Exodus, over like 20 weeks last year, and the, the major theme of Exodus is this theme of redemption. Redemption is you're in slavery, someone comes and buys you out of slavery. That's redemption. 
So as the people of Israel were bought out of slavery, so the people of God, you and I, have been bought out of slavery, slavery to sin. And all of it was wrought by Jesus himself. This is why we call our church Red Door Church, right? It's not because the door was red. We have to paint it to be in line with the church, not the other way around, right? We call it Red Door Church because we want this this visual and, and visceral reminder that as the people of Israel painted the blood of a spotless lamb on their doorposts to identify as the people of God and to be saved from the punishment that they deserved and to be delivered and redeemed out of the slavery in which they were kept, so we have painted the doors of our hearts with the spotless the blood of a spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. That his death has redeemed us from slavery. So that's what we we put our trust in, the redemption that Jesus won for us on the cross. He is our sacrificial lamb. How did that happen? How, How did he win our redemption? He died. He was sacrificed for us. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Jesus was our sacrificial lamb. He was our sacrifice of atonement. The old word is is propitiation. He is our propitiation. Propitiation means that in his death, he absorbed all of God's wrath that should have fallen on us. That's what a sacrifice of atonement, that's what a propitiation does. It takes the wrath of God, which is just and right, and it absorbs it all. It it satisfies it completely. I witnessed these acts of propitiation a couple of weeks ago. It was Valentine's Day, and I was at Coles, and it was in the evening, like late in the evening, close to midnight, close to closing time. I was doing the weekly shop, and I saw these streams of like harassed-looking men coming in to buy the last of the wilted flowers because they had realized too late that they had nothing for their wife or girlfriend or whatever, and so they were coming to buy sacrifices of atonement. That's what those flowers are, right? Are you with me? And they're going to take them and they're going to try and use them to absorb the wrath of their wives and girlfriends. That's what a sacrifice of atonement does. And for most, well, for some of them, it probably worked. Like, she was like, oh, I still hate you, but these flowers are okay, right? And it kind of, it, it tempers it, if not kind of absorbs it. But in this case, full propitiation has been made such that Jesus' death is big enough, magnificent enough, like full enough that all of God's just wrath is satisfied and absorbed to the point that it's as if it never was there. Remember in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said, The wrath of God is being revealed against all of the godlessness and wickedness of men. That all of us don't love God as we should and we don't love one another as we should. We don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. And because of that, the wrath of God is coming against us. And it's not an angry 
grumpy God. It's just perfect justice. It's what we deserve. And that wrath is absorbed by Jesus' sacrifice of atonement. Remember we said at the beginning, um, this church in Rome, Paul's never visited it. He's never been to Rome. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting church because as far as we know that it was started by this group of Jews from Rome who went to Jerusalem for Pentecost and there the Holy Spirit turned up and they became Christians and they went back to Rome and started a church and then somewhere along the line, I think it was Emperor Claudius, kicks all the Jews out of Rome because they love Jesus and, um, and then they come back but they come back to a church that has been carried on by Gentile Christians and so now you've got this whole melting pot of very different cultures and very different... Um, religious backgrounds and in the midst of the most, one of the most cosmopolitan cities on earth at the time. And, and so Paul is writing to this church to bring them together, to unify them around the gospel, not around their cultural trappings, but around the gospel. And so put yourself in the place of the Jews who are in his congregation reading through this, reading, reading these verses for the first time, and, and they hear that Jesus is a sacrifice of atonement, and, and immediately their mind would have gone to the great day in their annual calendar for the people of Israel, the day of atonement, where the priest would intercede on behalf of the people, and he would take two goats and he would kill one of them, as a sacrifice of atonement, and he'd, he'd take the other one and put his hands on its head, and he would, he would pray and lay the sins of the people on the head of the goat and then kick it out into the wilderness, and where we get the term scapegoat from. It would become the scapegoat for the people's sin, and that's how he would attempt to deal with this manifest sin of his people. But we know, and they knew from their experience, we know from the scriptures that that was just inadequate to deal with the, the, the magnitude of people's sin and the offense against God. And so they hear that Jesus has become their sacrifice of atonement, that he has become their propitiation. And their mind, obviously, is cast back to the old covenant. It's cast back to their fathers in the faith. And they're probably thinking to themselves, First of all, whoa, like this is, this is big. This is different. This is a new covenant. Like for us Protestants, like this is just like bread and butter. Like if you don't know this, you're probably not a Christian, right? We, yes, we receive this by faith. It's Jesus, what Jesus has done for us, not what we can do for ourselves. It's like, yeah, we get that. For them, this is new. This is big. To say that the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law is huge. And so they're grappling with that, and then they're thinking about, well, what about our fathers? What about those who have gone before? They didn't know Jesus. What happens to them? God says that they're his children. What about, like, take, for example, King David, right? Man after God's own heart, great hero of the faith. What, what about him? Where's he standing in terms of God's mercy and judgment, right? And then you think about it some more and you think, yeah, what about King David? Man after God's own heart, but also an adulterer and a murderer, among other things. Remember that whole little episode? He's on the roof, sees Bathsheba naked, bathing on her roof. It's like a dog in heat. He's just like, I want that. And so has her brought to him, sleeps with her, Gets her pregnant, wants to cover that up, so takes her husband, Uriah, who's one of his best men, has him killed. 
try and cover it up, cover it up, and the whole thing's exposed in the end. But here's what should happen. If, if the first two chapters of Romans is right, and God is just, and His wrath is revealed against godlessness and wickedness, then forget killing Uriah. Forget getting her pregnant. Like, when he sees her from the roof, he should be dead. He lusts after another man's wife. Done. God just zaps him like Zeus from the clouds, right? That's what should happen. And yet it doesn't happen. So where does King David stand in all of this? If if, if all of this is true, this is how Paul explains it to them and to us. He says in verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. This is the, Paul gets the problem, right? He says, yeah, God didn't kill him and he should have. He's let things go. In his forbearance, right, in his, in his long-suffering, in his compassion, in his patience, he's left things unpunished that should be punished if he's going to be just. And so Paul says the answer to this quandary is Jesus' sacrifice of atonement. Jesus' death, in his death, he took upon him not only the sins of you and me, but the sins of David. He took upon himself the sins of the world. And they were rightly punished, right? That thing that David did, Jesus suffers for it. And so we'll go on to explain, we'll get this in the next couple of chapters. He goes on to explain that those who were saved in the Old Covenant were saved by the blood of Jesus, even though he hadn't yet been killed. If you want to read more about that, read the book of Hebrews. It's a whole manifesto on how everyone who's been saved through all of time has been saved because of Jesus' sacrifice by faith in the sacrifice of Christ. And then you think about it like, forget David, what about us? What about the present time? Because it's one thing that David, you know, committed adultery and murdered someone, but you and I are doing that all the time. You and I are doing that all the time. And here's why. Because you could, start, you, could, you could measure yourself against my seven-year-old's standards and fail. You could upgrade it to the old covenant law and fail. And then you get to Jesus. And Jesus isn't the, the, the hippie Jesus that people think he is. They're just like, oh, live, and, live and let live, you know, whatever. No, he cranks it up to 11 He takes the Old Covenant law and makes it impossible for us to even think about keeping it. He says things, like in the Sermon on the Mount, he says things like, yeah, you know how we said don't commit adultery? Well, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. You know how we said don't murder? Well, if you hate someone, you've murdered them. (laughs) What? So suddenly, far from judging David for being the kind of guy that he was, suddenly I am that guy over and over and over again. 
And so what Paul says to us is that in verse 26, he did, he did this, he put forward Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time for you, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Right? He's saying, yeah, we've got a problem here. If you commit adultery by looking at someone lustfully, and if you commit murder by hating someone, right? If you transgress the law as often as all of us do, then how can God be just and not destroy us? How can God be just and forgive us? He says, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer, right? I'm sorry if this is Sunday school, but it's true. There is no other answer. You could, could we try and make this more complicated? It's not. Jesus, once for all, sacrifice of atonement is the reason why God can be just and the justifier of us. Why God can be the judge and the merciful one. The old saying goes, the Puritans used to say that justice and mercy kiss at the cross of Christ. This is how God can be judge and saviour. Because everything, all of the debt, all of the wrath, all of the punishment has been satisfied. There is no more left. Even if God wanted to be angry at you for your sin, it's all been consumed. It's dealt with. It's done. That's the power of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. So where does this leave us? It leaves us, actually, with a couple of choices to make. If, if, you've, if you've heard all that I've been saying, or forget what I've said, if you've just heard what Paul has said about who you are and about who God is and about what Jesus has done, if you've heard that, then you can reject it and just write it off as a myth and a fairy tale. Or you can receive it and be overwhelmed with joy and thanksgiving at God's manifest grace and love for you. The one thing, the one thing, please God Almighty, please, please, the one thing that you can't do is be indifferent to it. You can't be indifferent to it. If you're indifferent to this, it's because you're dead spiritually, right? And then we're just praying that God would raise you to life. Otherwise, you've got a very clear path ahead of you. It's either to reject all of this as nonsense, and then, honestly, there are better things to do on Sundays. There really is. Or... It's to receive what God has done on your behalf in his son, in his, the death of his son, and respond by making all of life all about Jesus. I'm going to invite us in just a second to stand and to, and to sing songs of praise and thanksgiving. Because if all of this is true, then that's all we've got left to do, right? If everything has been done for us, and this is something that we received as a gift by faith, then all we can do is give thanks. 
There's nothing to take credit for. There's nothing to boast in. And that's why it says in verse 27, where then is boasting, it is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified, made right with God by faith, apart from works of the law. The opposite of boasting is thanksgiving. Boasting is about speaking about what I've done and what I've achieved and trying to garner some interest in my accomplishments. The opposite of that is just thanksgiving. Thank you. I don't deserve any of this. I deserve the opposite of this. And yet you've given me all of this as a gift. Let's give thanks and praise. I'm going to pray for us now. And I'm going to pray that... that God would give us true affections as we stand to worship him. What I'm seeing in front of me is a graveyard, right? And I know some of us keep in our emotions. I'm one of those guys. I don't laugh and I don't cry, right? I'm just kind of trying to keep it pretty cool. And that might be you. That's fine. Some of us, some of you guys tell me, I wish in church that I could just express my gratitude for God. Do it, right? Don't hold back. If all of this is true, then even the most contained of us should have something within us stirring. There ought to be something within us that wants to give voice and expression to the gratitude that we have for what Jesus has done on our behalf. So I'm going to pray now, even now, that even if up until this point nothing has stirred, that God by his spirit would awaken us to his goodness and love. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help because for some of us this message is old and it's worn out. And so we need you by your spirit to awaken us to the glory of it, its magnificence and its beauty. And others of us here are, are, are wanting to stand up and shout and sing and dance and praise you for your goodness. They can't believe how good you are. And yet they feel like they've got to contain themselves. God, forgive us. Please release us in liberty to give voice to our gratitude, our joy, our thanksgiving for all that you've done for us. But... Now, but now we are made right with you, not because of what we have done, but because of what you've done on our behalf. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.